This is Michael Easley in context. Follow Michael on Twitter at Dr. Easley. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Matt Moore is a 25-year-old writer who spent the last few years engaging the culture in discussions about sexuality and faith. In 2010, Matt became a follower of Christ out of a lifestyle of homosexuality. Through his writing, he hopes to help not only the gay community, but others understand a biblical perspective on what it means to follow Christ. He lives in New Orleans as part of a church planting team. Matt says of himself, I'm actually a pretty boring person. (laughs) I love Jesus. I love to read the Bible. I love listening to people who know more about the Bible than me. I like writing. I like to work out. I like to eat even more. Welcoming to the program today, Matt Moore. Well, Matt, first of all, um, thanks for being with us on In Context. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit of your story. Uh, reading up on you and reading your blog, we'll have on the website there. Folks can find out a little bit about your story. But I'm, I'd be interested to see how you'd like to tell it as opposed to how it's told. <laughs> well, um, I am 25 years old. Um, I've been living in New Orleans, Louisiana up until three days ago. Um, I'm back home in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, I, I became a believer in 2010 when I was 21 years old. Um, I was in the middle of a uh, not merely a homosexual lifestyle, um, whatever that really means, but uh, a drunken lifestyle, tr- promiscuous lifestyle, a really hopeless way of life. And I had a couple of friends that had become believers over a period of that year in 2010 um, who had continued to share the gospel with me and to love me. And uh, towards the end of the year, I really came to the end of myself and realized that my life and my way of living my life was broken. I needed to be fixed. I needed to be—I didn't use this language then, but I needed to be redeemed. Um, I needed to be made whole. And so I began pursuing this God that my friends had turned to. Um, And then within a couple of months, I really understood the gospel of Christ, and I became a believer. From that point forward, I just started to write some, just um, elaborating on my experiences, because I feel like it's a need in our culture um, and even in the church. That's the long story, very, very short. One of your articles that that I thought was fascinating was, I love Jesus too much to call myself a gay Christian, written, I guess, October of 14. Interesting that you would would go there, um, because you've got Matthew Vines, you've got a number of folks who are out quite prominently talking about, well, I am a gay Christian. Is it a defensiveness? Is it a uh, rights orientation? And then how you approached it in your blog, basically with two points, you said you hate sin. That's pretty strident, Matt, just to come out <laughs> and say, I know. I'm not going to be called a gay Christian because I hate sin. <laughs> now, right. Explain a little bit to us. Right. Well, um, that really wasn't even um, geared towards people like Matthew Vines. I was gearing that, or the, the thought in my mind, the image of the gay Christian in my mind, were different friends or different people that I know of, like Wesley Hill or Julie Rogers, um, who are repentant and celibate um, Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction, um, and they're, they're orthodox in their beliefs, but in their terminology, they, they choose to call themselves gay still, and are pretty adamant about that and about how it's okay and about how the church should embrace this worldly terminology and then how, how people who struggle with homosexual temptations 
should embrace this gay identity, which I just feel just flies in the face of, of scriptural teaching. It flies in the face of the believer's identity in Christ um, and no longer in the world and no longer in the flesh, no longer in sin, but in Christ alone. Um, and I just feel that, that although they would find that using that word to describe themselves would put them level with the world in order that they could engage them better. I feel it actually does opposite of that because you're communicating to the gay community and to the unbelieving world that you still find so much of who you are in your flesh and in, in your fallen sinful inclinations rather than in Christ. And so that's why the first one I put, I, I hate sin because <laughs> Really, that's what it is. I mean. These people who call themselves gay Christians, although they're orthodox, supposedly, like in their beliefs, they're really dumbing down the evil of sin and the heinousness of sin and making it feel and sound better than what it actually is. Let me ask you, because I was talking to Rosario Butterfield about oh, this not long ago, and asked her, I said, Rosario, if, if we approach it this way, then I should lead with, I'm a womanizer. You need to accept that. You know, I, I made a commitment to my wife almost 35 years ago, and in God's kindness have not broken that commitment, um, that I would use the spirit's control and self-control to avoid, uh, you know, getting in trouble. And right. so I'm committed to one woman the rest of my life. So if I say I'm a, a womanizer, I lead with that, that doesn't play very well. I don't want to say I'm a pedophile or I'm a homosexual or I'm transgendered, whatever. Why, why is there, the, and maybe it's an unfair question, but why do you think there's such a um, desire to hang on to that identity piece? Honestly, I think it's, and they would take offense to this, but it's truly what I believe. I, I believe it's, it's pride. I believe that they find some satisfaction and comfort and pride in identifying as gay. And I don't know if that is an overreaction to having to suppress and hide that part of themselves for so much of their lives that now that they have come out, they're unwilling to relinquish that terminology to describe themselves because it's who they are and it's who they've always been. Um, and they're going to be honest with that no matter what. I think some anger may fuel that, um, anger at being misunderstood by the world and by mm. the church. In Christian communities, people who choose to use the term gay to describe themselves, I feel like the motives are, are pretty similar to why the world would use those terminologies to describe themselves and pride. It seems to come back to that a lot. Um, <laughs> you went on in that article to talk about, I don't believe calling myself a gay Christian will help my endeavor to communicate a gospel that transforms identity. And that's what my question is exactly in, in your answer to that is, where does Matt's identity come from? Right. It's where, where does my identity come from? And, and, what part of who I am do I find valuable? Do I, do I find my born-again, grace-wrought nature in Christ as, as the part of me that now I find my identity in this, or do I still find my identity and view myself according to my fallen and natural nature? You know, and I, I feel like when you say gay Christian, well, you're communicating to the world that, like, yes, like you love who God has made you to be in Christ, and that's how you identify yourself and you're thankful for it, but at the same time, like, you're still holding on to the fallen, natural inclinations that God hates, you know, and that Christ died for, and so I just feel it's, it's just very contradictory, um, 
and confusing to the world for somebody to communicate themselves that way. You also posted a blog at the end of last year, I kissed a girl and I liked it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that one had to stir up some, uh, some social media activity. It did, and um, I, that's why I titled it that way. Uh, <laughs> it just <laughs> kind of shocked people a little bit. Um, not sure if that was a good decision or not in retrospect, but it is what it is. Um, <laughs> I basically, at the end of last year in October, uh, met a girl in Louisiana um, through some friends in church that they were trying to matchmake me with, but I was not interested in it initially, and neither was she. But we somehow continued to communicate which led to us hanging out. And the more that I hung out with her, the more I was shocked at how much I liked her and how much I was drawn to her. Mm. Um, and so I felt it was, imp- I felt like previously in, in my writing, I had strongly communicated that I believed that there would be no sort of shift in my sexuality and that I would be solely attracted to men for the entirety of my existence and this fallen flesh and that. I would choose to honor Christ by living celibate in light of that. And so I felt it was important, you know, and I approved it by her before I wrote the blog, just to reveal that I do not know at all, and I do not know all that the Lord is going to do in me. I don't know what, to what degree my sexuality will be sanctified, but, you know, I encountered this relationship with this girl that really surprised me and took me off guard. Of course, you know, there all kinds of opinions on reparative or sometimes called conversion therapy. If you saw the movie um, uh, on turning, that was, uh, of course, uh, one of the secondary messages of his story on the imitation game is as far as historically attempts to change a person's, quote, orientation. Um, on one level, it would be, well, if your identity in Christ is what he intended it to be, I'm less of a womanizer than I was, hopefully, when I was single. Um, and I've been committed to my wife for years. Is that a non sequitur argument to make that it doesn't change or it couldn't change? Um, I mean, I, I do. I believe that your sexual. I believe all that we are as human beings can change the more that we behold the glory of Christ mm. and are uh, transformed more and more into His image. So I don't know that I would be pro reparative therapy mm-hmm. specifically because I, I don't know that change in sexuality or in any part of our being comes through specific therapeutic exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it comes through having an increased revelation of the gospel and of who we are in Christ and being closer to Him. Um, I, I know that the shift in my sexuality, I mean, it hasn't been a radical shift, but there has been some shift. It hasn't been a result of, of seeking out you know, counsel. And I'm not saying those are bad things, but it has not been a result of seeking out counseling or therapeutic exercises mm-hmm. or, you know, trying to figure out what happened in my childhood to make me this way. It wasn't that. It was been daily reading of Scripture and daily prayer and daily seeking to see the face of Christ and then just being changed in light of that. It's kind of mysterious, and I can't really explain the mechanics of it. How much is community play into that for you? It has been massive for me. And I really underplayed the importance of community until I moved to New Orleans and was a part of the church planting team. But, you know, I moved in 2012 and became incredibly tight-knit with this group of 10 people. And I grew more in those two years, just ingrained into this tight-knit, gospel-exalting, Christ-loving community than I ever would have remaining to be like a church attender, basically, like I was before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I would view community as, as vital. 
let me do a little word association with you, and uh, we can come back and expand on them as you'd like. Tolerance. Tolerance. I believe that true tolerance would be to be able to respectfully disagree uh, with people who have totally different worldviews and perspectives on things, including sexuality. And by respectfully disagree, I mean be able to disagree without saying that the opposing party hates you. And I would say the new definition of tolerance, which is not true tolerance, would be in order for you to be a tolerant person, you need to not only agree with a certain worldview or perspective, but you need to support um, and advocate for that worldview and that perspective. Our fallen context. How would you respond to our fallen context? I would say our fallen context would be that the world and us as human beings are not what we were created to be. Um, we were created to be good, and we were very good before the fall. Um, and now, since the fall, um, we have a fallen nature that we have inherited from Adam and Eve. And because of that, our desires and our feelings and our inclinations are all messed up and, and are directed more toward evil than they are toward good. And that doesn't mean that we're as bad as what we could be. Um, there are still remnants of God's character and image reflected in us, um, but in totality, we are stained by sin. Um, and because of that, every part of who we are is inclined toward brokenness and toward sinful self-destruction. We've talked about identity quite a bit already, but just curious, how would you define identity? I would say identity would be an awareness or a consciousness of what or who you most truly are. That's how I would define it. That's I've never been asked that before. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you think of our sin nature in, in a fallen context, and we've talked about that a bit, our identity, uh, who we identify ourselves with because we're corrupted in our fallen nature, it's, you know, it's looking through muddy, gla- muddy glass. You know, it's, it's right. confusing. And uh, so much of the same-sex attraction or even heterosexual exploitation of one another, Fifty Shades of Grey being a great example of, you know, objectifying sex and adding in um, all sorts of perversion into it to make it more normative. So we're starting to change our way we look at ourselves. That's how I was made. That's how, that's who I am. That's my identity. All of us as sinners have an identity baseline, but we don't understand that. You mentioned your lifestyle before Christ. Something changed in Matt's heart and mind and thinking that said, look, that's not who I am. Yeah, and I I think that prior to knowing Christ, I I viewed myself and my identity as being good. Um, Mm. I viewed myself as not being sinful, really. I mean, not being perfect, but mostly good. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I came to Christ, He humbled me and showed me that I'm not good apart from Him and His grace. Like, I'm evil. Mm -hmm. Um, Seeing what my identity was apart from Christ really changed my perspective on things like my same-sex attractions. Uh, before Christ, I couldn't understand how, well, how I'm a good person. How could these feelings that I just naturally have for love, I mean, that's how I viewed it, you know, be wrong and be evil and be vile and be an abomination. Like, it makes no sense to me. But when I understood who I really was in my natural state as a broken, fallen, sinful sinner, um, it made it click. It made mm-hmm. sense to me. Oh, well, 
if I'm really as bad off in my natural state as the Bible says that I am, it makes sense that I would naturally have these feelings that are wrong. When you talk to uh, folks that have same-sex attraction, uh, who self-identify as gay, as a lesbian, as transgender, whatever, what what are the the themes, if that's not an unfair word to use, what are the, the, the common responses you hear from them about why they would identify themselves that way? Um, I mean, really, like what I just said, that okay. they would say, it's the same thing as that I used to say, I'm a good person, and I mm. only desire to love, and these desires that I have are not, they're not bad. I mean, they can't possibly be bad. They're not hurting anybody. And so, I mean, this is who God made me to be. Like, he made me gay, just like he made that Joe Smith straight, you know, he made me gay. And so they just don't view themselves as being broken, number one. And so then they don't view their same-sex attraction as being anything remotely bad. So how do you talk to them? You've got a friend who's same-sex attraction. You've, you've gotten to know him. You're, you're chatting over coffee, and he's open to discussion. How do you start parsing this conversation? I would start, honestly, I think I think when you're talking to somebody that is gay and identifies as gay and holds tight to that, um, and they're unrepentant, they're not a believer, I think the worst thing you could do is try to convince them that their sexuality is bad or harmful to themselves or anything like that. Um, I honestly think the worst thing you could do is even focus on sexuality because they have totally convinced themselves that their sexuality is good and the whole world tells them that. I think you need to go a step further and try to help them see that their heart apart from sexuality um, in ways of hatred or greed or selfishness, I mean, anything like that, and try to help them to see, hey, like, we really are messed up. Because I feel like that's the first thing that they need to believe before they're going to believe anything that, you know, we believe or the Bible says about homosexual behavior. They need to first believe that at their very core, beyond their sexuality, that they are broken people. And so that's kind of how I would start. On your Wednesday, February 18th blog, um, you took a pretty strong stand. Christians stop saying being gay is a choice. And you tell a rather intimate conversation with your grandparents who have a view that perhaps exemplifies a percentage of the Christian community and says, well, that was your choice. Tell us a little bit about that conversation and how you responded. Yeah, well, we, we were discussing um, other family members in my family who um, really embraced me before I was a believer and I had come out as gay and really affirmed that behavior uh, and that lifestyle choice. And my, so my grandfather was telling me, he's like, you know, well, even back then, before you knew Jesus, I would tell them, you know, God did not make Matt gay. It is his choice. And then so I, I tried to, I immediately began to respond, not harshly or in anger, but as I began to speak, my, my grandmother could tell that I was disagreeing with what he was saying. And she was like, well, Matt, what he's saying is that it's a choice. I mean, it is a choice. You know, didn't you choose to be gay before you knew Jesus? Now you choose not to be. And so I began to explain to them, you know, when they, when they say being gay, regardless of what they mean in their minds, what that communicates to every single gay person or unbeliever is that you're saying 
that their experience of, of feeling these desires, that's what they think of when they hear being gay, is the experience of feeling desires for the same sex. You're saying that that's a choice. And, and they were like, well, no, you know, we all have different weaknesses and we all, we're fallen people and we have, you know, all have sinful desires that we don't choose. But, you know, they're choosing to act out on those desires. And I was like, precisely. I'm like, I, I totally agree. And that's what I, when I came out as gay, I chose to embrace these sinful desires that I did not choose to feel, but I chose to embrace them and to act out on them. I'm like, it's really important that if that's what you're meaning when you're saying somebody made a choice to be gay, you need to say it like that. You need to say they're choosing to embrace their sinful inclinations rather than turn away from them and trust in the gospel. Um, and so it was a really good and fruitful conversation. And I knew before I even got in, you know, into the conversation with them that I knew they believed what I believed. I knew we were on the same page theologically and biblically. Um, but just the way that I would articulate that versus the way they would articulate that mm-hmm. is just completely different. You know, it's interesting reading your blog on that because in the churches that I've served, I, I would say there there may be a percentage of folks that would hold that view. And I want to be careful to not generalize the church or to vilify it. But but I would find in, in the last 10 plus years, maybe 15 years, it's more of an embracing of the idea that that person's made that way. They're born gay. That is their identity. They're not hurting others. They're loving. Uh, you shouldn't be judgmental. You shouldn't be intolerant. And that's more of the especially the 20, 30-something mindset toward um, homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and so forth, um, and, and kind of beating up on this straw man church that is intolerant and unloving and so forth and so on. Yeah, I would agree. And that, that's how the majority of my family, even currently, um, views it. Um, they actually, I think, embraced and supported me more when I was an unbeliever um, than they do now as a repentant believer. Although their church, they go to church, they're moral people, um, supposedly, but they are not very supportive of the choices that I make, or that I'm making daily now as a believer in Christ. And so, I mean, I, I would say that that's definitely true. Um, I, I think that they far more outnumber the people like my grandparents, you know, who would say, well, being good is a choice, um, you know, and so, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. You've been involved in a church plant, and uh, some pastors are probably going to listen to this podcast and download it. What would you say to them about, okay, you've got an audience out there. I always look at audiences as a bell curve, you know, you've got the extreme, you know, really convinced already those you'll never commence all points of uh, gradation in between. So you're speaking to a large audience, but for that element that is saying, wow, they're, you know, they're not mean people. They are loving people. Uh, they were born that way. It's their identity. They're good. Can't you just accept them and, and tolerate them and not speak hateful language to them? What, what would you say to that segment of the body? Yeah, I, I would say to be truthful is really, that's, that's to be loving. It's not to be hateful. Um, I mean, if, if what we believe as Orthodox Christians regarding sexuality and what is sin and what is not sin and what the Christian life looks like, if what we believe is actually, is actually true, regardless of how we feel about it or anybody else feels about it, 
the most loving thing to do would be to reveal that truth and communicate that truth to to everyone who it applies to, which is everyone. Um, so, I mean, to to comfort somebody in their sin and to call that not judging them and to reassure somebody that they know the Lord while they're embracing a lifestyle of sin is really the most hateful thing that you could do. I mean, I know that the world will not say that. The world will continually call speaking the truth hateful, no matter how gently you do it. Um, but at the end of the day, the most hateful thing you could do is to comfort somebody in sin and reassure them of their place in Christ while they're in sin. It's a massive need in the Church um, for people to not saying that they do not understand um, homosexuality, because I feel like it's not a whole lot to understand. Like, it is, is sinful sexual immorality, um, and it needs to be turned away from, just like everything else needs to be turned away from that is sinful. We've been talking to Matt Moore. You can find out more about him at Moore, that's M-O-O-R-E, moremat.org, where he writes a blog ever so often. He also, you'll find him on Christian Post and other publications. Matt, it's been great to have you on In Context. All right, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Michael Easley In Context.